Hello and welcome to the Real Max Team podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. My guest today, Sandy Carter, has been consistently recognized by her peers as one of the most influential and powerful women in technology. She's a technology marketing visionary and exceptional operator. She wrote the playbook on how to leverage social media in the business context over a decade ago. She ran marketing at IBM for the WebSphere product line at a time where service-oriented architectures took the software infrastructure world by storm. As the lead executive in charge of strategic partnerships at Amazon Web Services, Sandy helped companies leverage new emerging technologies like AI, IoT, and VR into the cloud. Bottom line is, her market timing ability has been uncanny. This tells me you're supposed to follow her lead and watch out when she's making a move. The move she's making is in Web3, as Chief Operating Officer of Unstoppable Domains. One of the most exciting core values in Web3 is enabling end users to take control of their data and put the intangible assets they own to work for their benefit. One such asset is your digital identity. Those of us who have been active on chain are all familiar with crypto's obscure dressing formats, one of the many hurdles to mass market adoption. Unstoppable Domains is redefining the identity experience over the internet by allowing corporate brands and consumers alike to own and manage their own human-readable Web3 domain name. This ties into notions of chain-based social verification and broad resolution of crypto addresses, making users' experience more seamless and safe. As of this writing, there are 3.7 million registered Web3 domains on Unstoppable, resulting in over 30 million resolutions per week. Branded TLDs are now available to Web2 brands to secure precious digital real estate and mindshare for their customer franchise. Yet current registrations are only a fraction of the total addressable market, which makes the wager all the more enticing. In this episode, we chat about Sandy's early passions for space exploration and wanting to help others by initially pursuing medical studies before switching to computer science. She talks about her father being a motivating force and convincing her to stick with a STEM education a traditional male-dominated curriculum. I hope this will inspire many more women to join the crypto industry as we look to diversify perspectives and talent towards the next wave of growth. Sandy has an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's in computer science from Duke University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I actually grew up as a military kid. My dad was in the service, so we moved around a lot. That really plays a big role in my journey because as a result, I didn't mind moving around a lot. So when I started working for companies like an IBM or an Amazon who moved me around a lot, it was very uh, normal for me. I actually grew up wanting to be an astronaut. That was my dream. My dad had bought me a telescope. We would look at the stars. We look at the moon and we would dream someday I will be the first woman on the moon. But as I grew up, and kind of changed some of my thoughts or my value points, I switched over to wanting to be a doctor. So yes, astronaut to a doctor, probably every little child's dream. And I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. That was really my main mission. I would doctor up all the animals. I would doctor up my brothers. I would doctor up kids in the neighborhood. And so I thought that's what I wanted to do until I went to Duke University. And in my sophomore year, I had to dissect a live animal. And the anesthesia that they used caused me to pass out. So not very good for a doctor. It turns out that I am very allergic to many of the chemicals that they use in hospitals to keep them clean and doctor's offices. So I have a problem even today, even going to the doctor, nevertheless, being a doctor, I was devastated. And so what I ended up doing is talking to my advisor who happened to be an advisor at the medical school, and had started up this thing at Duke around computer science and healthcare. And so I worked with him and I did my thesis on how to do drug testing using computer programming versus testing on animals. That really got me started in the tech field. I just loved it. So fast forward, I really started with applying technology to a business problem, which has really been kind of the history of my career. I went to IBM. I focused on various industries, AWS, again, always about either being a product manager. I ran product management at AWS, focused on finding a way to apply 
the tech to solve a business problem, which has always been really important to me. So is it fair to say that from an early age, so there's really two things to unpack here. One is the fact that you're moving around a lot. And I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about this because I can relate. Personally, I was an oil brat, not an army brat, but I moved around a lot. And funnily enough, a lot of very, very successful people that I've spoken to on this podcast have had similar backgrounds of having to pick themselves up and adapt and create new ties and understand the landscape, understand, be able to read these new environments and develop probably an above average ability to do this. Is it, Would you say that's something that's helped you in your career and your own development? I do. In fact, where it's really helped me is in forming relationships and friendships because I had to make new friends very quickly. So we would go from North Carolina to Texas, to Florida, to wherever. and you know this because of your background. If you didn't make friends fast and you're going to move fast, you could live two, three years in a place and never make a great friend. And that makes life very lonely. And I love people. So that was something that I had to learn at an early age. So today, if you look at one of my superpowers, I would say one of my superpowers is the ability to network, to form strong relationships. In fact, today, if you ask me about my top 10 friends, I would say they are spread all over the world, not even all over the U.S. I figured out a way to keep in touch with them, just like I had to do when I moved. I used to write letters. Now I have Zoom calls. And so it's really enabled me to grow that network and to have really strong friendships as well. Yeah, I can relate to that. And it is so important also to nurture these relationships over time. And I think, again, having had to move around, I think you develop a sense that you don't take it for granted. It's not your childhood towny friends that will always be around. You'll bump into them every day, go into the supermarket or whatever it is. You have to work at it. And so you develop that natural ability. The other thing is it seems you're very scientifically inclined, right? I mean, I would assume you gravitated towards biology, math, sciences in general. Is it fair to say that was natural inclination? Yeah, I love problem solving. And yeah, math and science are all about that. And I have to give a big plug to my dad here because growing up a lot of times in calculus or physics, I was the only girl or woman in those classes. And my dad, I'd always come home going, oh, I'm going to drop out of this. Like there's nobody I know is there was just a bunch of old guys. And my dad would always say, no, you need to be there. You need to be the woman that others can see that can do it. And then others will follow. I mean, he told me that from very, very early age. And I love him for many things, but that's one of the things I really love him for is that he encouraged me to stick with the STEM education classes. And clearly it's paid off quite handsomely and it just sets one up for success in this generation, right? I mean, it's just technology is so pervasive and it is all about sciences at the end of the day. And so the ability to marry the first part that we discussed, the relationship aspect, those soft skills that are so important when you run a business, when you build a business with the technical chops to understand and have the credibility to walk into a room and say, I know what I'm talking about. I've always found that's very important. I myself was born in a computer science household you know, started coding when I was six or seven years old, really out of boredom, had a PC computer, no games on it at the time. This dates me. So yes, I'm a little older these days. But so I had to figure out ways to use the computer. And so to me, I just picked up these two books that my dad had, one Pascal, one basic, and wrote some software programs to build some animated graphics, like literally big pixelated graphics, because it wasn't much at the time. So I can relate that. So you went on to pursue a career in People talk about TratFi. I'm going to coin that term. I don't know if it's been used. TratTech, I guess, going to work for some of the pioneers, but also the giants, the behemoth of the tech industry, IBM, big names, Amazon. So what was the thinking there? Is these are large companies. What was the thinking there in terms of going to work for established brands and platforms as opposed to going... Many folks, when they embrace technology, tend to gravitate more towards the startup. Yeah. So when I graduated from college, IBM was like the place to work. I know many people on the call are like, no freaking way. But at the time, IBM was the most innovative, had the most patents, the most new technology, 
the most of anything you could do. So in fact, if you were going to go into emerging tech, IBM was one of the best companies to go work for because you had, you could go get a training. They always used to say IBM trained all the great CEOs around the world because of everything that they had done and invested in. So that was one of the main reasons that I went to go work for IBM. Also, it was really interesting. My dad was an entrepreneur. And so he built small businesses himself. And it was quite interesting because he said to me, he had never worked for a big company. And he's like, I'm wondering what it would be like, like to work for a big company and be able to take vacation without having to be called back in. So he almost encouraged me to go look at some of the bigger companies. And then again, of course, IBM was like, I think if you got an offer at IBM, you like made it. No, and I'll say this. So when I went to work for a startup straight out of college, a tech internet startup, and then got the entrepreneurial bug, which I think was inherent in me and, and started my own company. And so at the time, it's very interesting that you said that. At the time, thrust at a very young age and had to grow business and manage. And what I there wasn't a whole lot on how to manage tech companies because they were still brand new. But what I reverted to were these management books written by very successful executives in corporate America. I mean, at the beginning of my career, these were still the types of books that you read. And I remember reading Who Says Elephants Can't Dance by Lou Gerstner. And I remember being very enamored with this idea that he had been able to, and now, many, many years later, having a much more precise understanding of how hard it is to affect change and how hard it is to get an organization that's, I mean, I can't even imagine, right? How to affect change through influence, through injecting new blood, through aligning the incentives correctly to get the whole organization to embrace innovation. Because at the time, IBM had already gone through its own ups and downs and its own ebbs and flows in terms of innovation. And to your point, it was exhibiting those green shoots at the time, a lot of it his making and, and the people he put in positions of influence within the firm. So it's interesting that you say this because, yes, I mean, in the conversation today, a few people will talk about IBM as having been an exciting place to work. Yet, when you look at their work in blockchain, you work at the work in AI, they've always been, and not to mention the inception of the computing age, always been at the emerging frontier and always invested resources in R&D. So it's interesting closing the loop on that. So now you're in a role, and then we'll get to it later, where it actually helps for you to, some people are really good with the zero to one, like getting a company from zero employees to maybe 50, 100 and then as a manager, as an executive, you either have to scale and really grow out of this initial entrepreneurial phase, which some people are able to do, and they're truly overachievers, that some people have to step down or have to be augmented or surround themselves with individuals such as yourself who actually have operated in the larger infrastructure and understand what it takes. You're no longer on that little raft. You're on a bigger boat. And so this, the, the way you essentially articulate and then transmit the vision to values throughout the organizations, the way you execute changes a lot, right? Can you talk a little bit about how you, working for these larger organizations, hone your craft in terms of being able to affect change, be able to get teams to execute with obviously a lot more friction and a lot more people involved than you typically have at an early stage? Well, so there's a couple of things that I think really helped me. People view IBM as being huge. And I did manage, like I was the chief marketing officer for our largest software product, which was called WebSphere. I was the chief sales officer for a company we acquired named called Lotus. So I was able to ensure that I was on what I would call startup-ish tasks. So for example, I did product management for Tivoli, which was an acquisition. That was a startup that IBM bought. And I was able to see how the founders had run the business, what they had done right, what they had done wrong, and put the, a lot of that into my toolkit, if you would, or my quiver of what I wanted to focus on. The same thing was true for Lotus. And then I eventually found there was an amazing 
I would say, senior executive. He was very well known at IBM. And he liked that I thought like an entrepreneur, not like a big company person. And so once he discovered that I had done some of these really cool roles, he actually ended up placing me on what I would call upstarts or new innovative techniques or things we needed to do. So in one case, we had a competitor, a smaller competitor who was starting to gain a lot of market share. He assigned me in a very small team, like four people to go and figure out what we needed to do. I was actually able to help them figure out a strategy. We could leapfrog their technology and ended up getting some patents with that because he put me on that. And so he kept me on those type of projects. So I would be like the starter, the builder. And once things got stable, he would switch me to the next building projects, for example. That actually taught me a lot about entrepreneurship. So when I left IBM and started my own company, I felt very comfortable because I was just doing the same thing. When I sold that and left that and went to AWS, AWS is like the world's biggest startup. All the teams that Andy and Jeff had were really just big connected group of startups. Your team was single mission and you had to accomplish that mission. It was frugal. They didn't give us a lot of money to do anything with. We always felt like we were super poor. And that taught me a lot of good values too. So I think the way I grew up in some of the big companies and going from small to big to small to big also really helped me keep fluid in what I was thinking about, if that made sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, it's kind of the best of all worlds, right? So you understand the nimbleness that's required, the effective, quick decision-making, but also how to, again, get teams to align and execute against that. So, and that's a different skill set as you migrate away from your own individual contribution to influencing much larger groups around a specific mission or task. What were your thoughts? I remember I was in instant messaging. My first company actually that is selling to Adobe was in the instant messaging space. So a lot of the work that we did was to build federated connectivity with existing legacy platforms such as Lotus Same Time. So we spent quite a bit of time integrating and building SIP, which is a voice over IP protocol integration with Same Time. A very fond memories of those days. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved with digital assets and blockchain. And what was your first exposure to the space? Well, so for me, it was, I started actually looking at some of these spaces at IBM. So at IBM, my specialty was really around artificial intelligence and believe it or not, cloud, because you needed the capacity of the cloud at that time strongly in order to do anything in AI. And so as I was looking at both of those areas, one of the things that was growing on cloud at that time was blockchain technology. It had just really started. And so I actually left IBM to do my own AI startup. And so when I got out of that, sold that, I went to AWS. I really started, Andy actually had me first looking at enterprise. But after I had done that and built that division after about three years, I switched over to looking at the regulated space. And you would think the regulated space, healthcare, financial services, Department of Defense, public sector, you'd be like, oh man, those guys have nothing to do with what you're talking about. But actually, all those areas were experimenting with blockchain early on. Financial services, a lot of the healthcare supply chain was looking at blockchain for the way the ledger worked around their supply chains. Education was looking at the metaverse for training and education and how could they do that more effectively and more experientially. And so a lot of the accounts that I had actually had all that use of technology. And so I was asked to look at, so what is the impact of blockchain? Like usually financial services starts with the tech and then it spreads everywhere else. So I first started looking at blockchain and then I looked at AR and VR, which make up kind of the metaverse. And so I started doing a lot of side projects while I was at Amazon because I was just so interested in that space. And then one day, kind of out of the blue, I got a call about Unstoppable. And Matt, who's their CEO, flew to Seattle to meet me. And I would have to say probably that dinner took kind of what I had been doing at AWS at a big corporate level with traditional Web2 companies leveraging it, took it really to the next level 
to say, wow, there's a couple of missing pieces here. Digital identity is one of those in this space. And I don't really see anyone filling that gap. So that's really how I got started in the space, really started with IBM and then moved to my startup, then to Amazon, and then into this particular startup as well. What was it during that dinner that was particularly compelling? What were the key selling points? Well, first of all, it was the gap that existed in digital identity. And how was that gap going to be filled if this whole blockchain vision and dream came through with Web3? How was that going to be filled? So I like new technologies that fill a gap, right? Fill a customer need. That was one. The second was painting the vision of the future. So I was asking questions like, okay, so if in digital identity and Web3, you own your own data. Okay, well, if that's true, then who's managing that data for you, right? Like at Amazon, we sold DBAs, database administrator. I mean, we sold a lot of that stuff for companies who couldn't even manage it themselves with big IT teams. So how was that going to occur? And I love the fact that Matt had already thought through that was very visionary to say, okay, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Well, what, I mean, all these things are possible. So I loved his vision of the future. I thought that it was far out, but doable. I don't know how to say that. That balance sounds weird, but far out, but doable. And then the fact that he felt I could come in and have an impact immediately. Now, in the meantime, I had also, because of all my side projects, I had been presenting some ideas to AWS management, which had changed at that time around this whole space, because I thought that AWS could do something really amazing in it. But at the time, I think it was just too early. They were not as interested in the space. And so I took this as a great time to kind of jump based on those two factors from Matt. A lot of things to unpack here. So the first thing I'll ask is, overall, what would you say your personal sort of risk tolerance, risk aversion is with respect to new initiatives? For, with this respect to new initiatives, I love new initiatives. So I get bored really easy. So I would say like a seven or an eight. I wish I was like a nine or a 10. Like my husband, and I think this is true of men versus women. My husband's like nine, 10. I would say I'm seven, eight. And I wish I had been more of a nine, 10, <laughs> to be honest. Well, women are better risk managers when it comes to running risk and trading. It's actually been studying in the data. They're better risk managers. So there might be something to that as well. So you work for pretty exceptional leaders. I don't know what your exposure was to Jeff and his cord of executives at Amazon, but certainly I'm sure you had exposure to it. What are the things that you see at Unstoppable that make you think, okay, these guys are great leaders? And obviously you joined the effort, but what are the things you look for? Well, so the interesting thing about I'm just use Amazon since it was my last company because I learned so much from each and every experience. That's part of what I do. I love to learn from what I did right, from what I did wrong. And I would say from Amazon, there's a couple of things that I learned about Amazon that was exceptional. One was the way that they select teams. So they have this process. They have what they call a bar raiser. And the bar raiser may not know anything about your field of expertise. They may not know anything about blockchain or AI or whatever you're hiring for. They may not know anything about your functional area, but they're to look after the core values or the cultural values of Amazon. So they know those the best. So they're looking for, oh, not only is this person exceptionally smart in that area, but what they're looking for is, but are they a cultural fit? Will they fit in? Will they do well in our culture? I thought that was really interesting because I've hired in the past, before I'd come to Amazon, I'd hire people and sometimes too quickly and they didn't fit into the culture. It wasn't that they weren't skilled or they didn't have great expertise in a certain area, but it was a cultural fit. So that was one of the things I learned from Amazon. The second is they do individual interviews, but group discussions. So there's no, a manager and a bar raiser together review all the feedback, but there's not ever a single person who makes a decision. So if the manager says don't hire, the person's not hired. If the bar raiser says don't hire, the person's not hired. If the manager and the bar raiser don't agree, that person cannot be hired. And all the feedback from all the other people who interview the candidate is always taken into account. We spend an hour talking about each candidate who makes it to that level. 
And I always learn so much because you think when you interview someone, you get all the insight, but I was always amazed at how when you have a group of five people who interview someone, all the different sides of that person that come out, the different ways they express things or explain things, the different perceptions about that person from a big group like that. And then always the cultural assessment as well, right? And so I learned a lot about hiring, how to hire, what to look for, what to ignore, as well as you're looking at people. And I think hiring, especially in a startup, is a superpower you must have. But also even in a big company, even though you have more backup resources, having a bad hire can impact a team in such negative ways that having that skill is such a superpower that's valued, I think, across the board. So I did learn a lot from the way Andy evaluated people, Andy Jassy, who's now the CEO, or even Arvin, who's the CEO of IBM, you know, how he looked at hiring people. I learned a lot from that. And I hope I take all the best lessons from that. Not to say that I haven't made mistakes because I have, but I think I am better. I think I'm a better hire or judge of talent now because I had all of those mentors growing up in my career. I love that you're bringing up this notion of human capital. It is so critical. And one of the things that you talk about here, which is the fact that, especially at, at an early stage in an effort, the, the right hire is a true multiplier. The wrong hire can really drag an organization down. And so I love the fact that the number one thing that came to mind as I asked that question was really tied to people, because that's the foundational element of any organization, especially when you're in the business of creating intellectual property in the form of like building business networks and building technology and things like that. So safe to say that you believe founding team and management at Unstoppable really embodies those qualities, but it's certainly something that you feel like you can also augment their team with. Yeah. The cool thing was, in fact, one of the things I found was cool is that Matt and the founding team were already using a lot of the elements of Amazon. So we don't have a bar raiser at Unstoppable, but we do, everybody does an interview and then we talk about the people that we want to hire. So and one or two people can veto a person, which I had never had in a company before. As a manager, I could just hire. And I couldn't do that at AWS, couldn't do that here at Unstoppable either. And the fact that at Amazon, because you have to write so much at Amazon, you're writing a narrative almost a week every week. They test you on your writing. You have to write a narrative. And here at Unstoppable, you also have to write a narrative. You have to defend your ideas. There's like a group review of it. So a lot of those best practices were already embedded into what I stepped into as well. It's very interesting to hear because I look at companies as an investor and it's amazing. You clearly tell why certain organizations are able to progress through these different stages because Unstoppable has really gone from literally zero to one and then much more, right? And exponential growth. So what you're sharing here to listeners is really not the entire playbook, but certainly saying this is one element that you have to get right in order to be able to scale. Like many companies get to that stage and don't have that because they've been focused on so many other things and not laying the foundation from a people management standpoint. So it's really interesting to hear your talk about this. So let's talk about Unstoppable. I'd love to hear your take on, you know, I always think about, okay, well, what's the thesis and there's obviously an early thesis, which you were communicated at that dinner and probably in, in more conversations as you looked at the role. Talk to us about, in terms of purpose, what's the problem, what's the solution, and how big you think the market is for Unstoppable? Well, there, our mission is to put a digital identity in the hands of every person. And right now we have 3.5 million digital identities out there. And so I don't know how many people are there in the world, billions. <laughs> so I think our market opportunity is huge. And the reason we want to get a digital identity into the hands of every person is that we do believe that owning your own identity is a human right. 
because you own the data, when you own a Web3 digital identity, you own your data, you own your digital identity. And that is, I think, so important, especially as we move forward. I have two daughters. I can see the difference in them and how they value data about them being shared and what they value in terms of digital assets over in real world assets. It's a big difference as we move forward. So I do believe that this area is really important. And let me just back up for a second. So what is a digital identity? So a digital identity is a way that you identify yourself across the metaverse, across the internet, and it provides you with a single way to sign into applications. So today you might sign into a platform like a TikTok or a Instagram or Twitter. You sign in with a username or password, which is essentially your digital identity. And then all the data that's collected about you on those platforms is sold, right? So Facebook and Google alone said they sold 11, I mean, $100 billion of data about you and I just last year. And so if you think about it, that's one way to look at data. Data is owned by the platform. You get the convenience of logging in. So that data is theirs and that's how they monetize. In Web3, we believe the data is yours because it's about you. It's personal. Like you wouldn't let someone else own your license or own your bank account. You own that. And so why should it be any different on the internet? So your Web3 digital identity has things like it enables you to transact. So I can use it as my crypto wallet and buy things, which I've done before in real life and online. My digital identity, which is Sandy.NFT, enables me to have an avatar that I can travel with across multiple metaverses, which are growing in importance and significance as we go forward. It enables me to show verifiable information about myself. So if I could show it to you, it would look like almost like a LinkedIn page, except instead of like LinkedIn, where I write about myself you have verifiable information that lives in that Web3 digital identity profile. For example, I can verify that I went to someplace. If I get a a ticket, a collectible ticket that's on chain, that will show up in my digital identity. It shows that I went there. Why is that important? Well, the Super Bowl was here in Phoenix last year, and I'm living here right now. And it was funny. I was talking to some of the NFL guys, and they're like, Did you know how many people say they go to the Super Bowl, but they never actually go to the Super Bowl? I just had no idea. Like I could put somewhere, I went to the Super Bowl. There's really no way to verify. Did Sandy go to the Super Bowl or did she not? Where if I have a ticket, you can see in my digital identity, I went to a Gary Vee event. I went to a Sonic Bloom music festival. I can also verify things that are important to me, like causes. So for example, We have a Nori badge, and that Nori badge verifies that I purchased a tree or made carbon neutral all of my purchases inside a a wallet. Well, that says it shows with action that I care about the climate versus writing somewhere, I'm supportive of the climate, but never doing anything. How can you validate that I've done something? We go one step further education. LinkedIn said, mentioned to me that. 40% of people who put on their LinkedIn profile, they went to Harvard, never went to Harvard. Well, why can they do that? Who validate? Like go on a LinkedIn profile. Do you ever validate that someone went to the school they have on the profile? No. But in a Web3 identity, it's verifiable. You can see the certificates that I've gotten. Those all exist there. And so I think there's such power in having this, especially now in the age of AI, where you've got so many deep fakes coming and you can't really prove if you're a human, this digital identity, so this Web3 technology actually can help you validate or determine about whether you're a person or not, or whether this is really you in the video or whether even right now, if you're really who you say you are. And so I see so much potential in what we're doing with this digital identity and so much more to do as well. I. Couldn't agree more. And so let me say a few things about this. I think that one of the greatest promises of blockchain and the digital asset age is precisely what you just described in great and amazing detail, which is if you think about the verifiable 
aspect of information, at the ability to verify and hence to trust information. And we live in an information age, which means the most important thing we consume and interact with every day is information. So the ability to verify this, the ability to verify transactions and so on and so forth. If you think about previous architectures, they rely on these centralized authorities that are entrusted by some mechanism, whether they inserted themselves and decided, hey, this is a business or this is a role we want to play. I mean, if you think about governments, it's the same, right? We're, we're going to set ourselves up through force and we're going to enforce law and order. And we're going to be the single source of truth when it comes to the rules, when it comes to verifying your identity, things like that. And if you fast forward to Web2, really, you have these organizations that are extracting a tremendous amount of rent, capturing it and keeping it under control, and are basically entrusted with verifying and at times doing a very, very poor job at doing so, as we've seen across big social media networks. It's been a challenge, right? This whole notion of the blue dot, verified blue dot on Instagram and Twitter and so on and so forth, and the big battle around verifying, to your point, that the people saying something are the people that they pretend to be uh, and that the information is accurate and verifiable. Web3 turns that on its head. Web3 actually is, I think, one of the best opportunities not to eliminate that rent, but redistribute it in a way that's more fair. And that to me is very compelling because what it, it ends up resulting in is an ability for people to take more ownership of their own information, of their own finances, and not have, you think again, the concept of a bank, right? It stems from an age when people had to bring something literally physical and needed someone to store it, right? And they entrusted an institution, and we've seen how that can go awry very, very quickly as recently as a few months ago, where institutions that are entrusted actually do a poor job with the assets that they're entrusted with. We obviously saw it in CFI and, and the demise of some of the crookery in 2022, which was unfortunate for the space, but a great learning experience, I think. So I think that's the great promise of blockchain is the ability to redistribute that rent so that people can be in control of how their information is being used and how it's being monetized. Uh, yeah, I could see a world, and I think we're headed towards this, where why should Facebook really decide how my data is being monetized? I should be able to say, yes, I'm okay with my data being mined or used to train neural networks, but I'd like to get a yield from this, right? There's actually a, a really interesting company in that space called Snickerdoodle. Jonathan, the founder there, is, is a visionary, and it's essentially all about you being able to control the way your data is being used over Web3. So I think it has great potential. And you said something very interesting earlier on. You said, I like to help people, right? It was a motivating force and spirit in your early days. So I could see why it's important to you to pursue this because it truly is about taking a model that's not, quite frankly, the fairest of all, and then start to migrate to something that's more fairly distributed. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is, you know, I do view this as purpose. You know, there's, I wrote a book once called Purpose or Profit. And why can't you do both? And it wasn't as hip and as cool as it is today to talk about purpose and profit. But that is how I select what I do. I like to make sure that I am still helping people that part of my DNA hasn't changed, helping people do something better or different. I think that's what digital identity is. I think it can help them with deep fakes. I think it can help them verify their most crucial information. I think it makes life easier because you have this digital identity as well that's stored. I mean, I was joking just earlier this morning. I have a basket still sits in my bedroom, believe it or not. And it's tickets, like tickets to all the concerts I went to and the first circus that my parents took me to, I mean, I literally, I have this huge basket of paper tickets and I never get to go look through those. But I have to tell you, almost a weekly basis, I go and look at the tickets in my digital identity because they're there. It's digital. It's super easy to get to. And I look back and I have great memories. And I think all those things are great for us humans, making just making things easier in this really busy world that exists today. Agreed. So... Going back to 
assembling the right team and surrounding yourself with capable individuals. How did you go about building your team and hiring around you as you joined Unstoppable? What was the main thinking there? What were the types of profiles that you brought on board? So this is really fascinating too. So I like a diverse team. I don't like a team that all thinks the same way, looks the same way. I like diversity. I feel like you get more innovation when you have a diverse team. So when I came into the company, when the company announced that I was coming here, people were pretty fascinated or maybe crazed that I left this amazing VP role at Amazon and I came to this little, who knows, who is unstoppable company. And so I think it was the New York Times. I can't remember now. I think it was the New York Times who published the article. We ended up getting thousands of resumes coming into us, which really helped me, right? Because we had all these resumes coming in. One of the things, though, I noticed right away was that only about 2% of those resumes were women. And so forming my team, I knew I wanted a diverse team. So I don't hire anyone because they're a woman or because they're a man or because they're purple. I always hire for skill sets, but I knew I wanted a diverse team. And with 2% of thousand resumes coming in being women, it's going to be really hard. So another story, but I did start a group called Unstoppable Women of Web3. I founded that in order to educate more women about what Web3 is, what metaverse is, now even adding some AI in there so that we have more women applying for these roles. Another story. So I'll leave that one. And so as I started looking, that meant that I had access to amazing talent because of that article. And so I wanted to select people who had a good mix and curiosity. So again, kind of looking at my Amazon background with culture, I developed a set of questions for people I wanted to hire about cultural fit, like what was it going to be a good cultural fit? I wanted people who were wicked smart, who had done things in small companies and big companies. To be honest, I did not care if they had actually worked in Web3 or the metaverse. I know a lot of people hiring would only hire people who had some experience. I thought that was something you could learn as long as you were curious and you wanted to learn and you had been successful in other roles that you could learn that stuff pretty easily. And so I designed a set of roles like I wanted someone to run BD for me. I wanted someone who could look after partner marketing because that was going to be really important with how we took things to market. I just hired a GC. I wanted someone who had curiosity, but a good risk monitor for himself, like not always saying no, but not always saying yes. We just hired someone who I think is phenomenal in that space. So I looked for kind of the best in those areas, but that fit our culture, not just had the functional fit, but fit our culture, wanted to learn because I knew we're going to go we're still a startup, we're going to pivot a couple more times. And if you can't take change and you can't take pivot, probably not going to be a good space for you. I love our team. I think we have a really outstanding team now. We've got a good set of diversity on the team. So I think we've done really well in hiring what I'd consider a diverse, high-performance team today. That's great to hear. Love your approach. What's your take on the resume as a recruiting tool? Do you care much? I mean, obviously, it's sometimes the only thing you can kind of start with. But what's your take on ultimately, what is the determining factor for you? You said curiosity, that spark, right? I mean, you know, because you see these resumes that look like they've checked all the boxes, the person comes in, and suddenly, it's just you realize very quickly that spark just isn't there, right? That drive. Uh, Do you agree with that? Or do you actually rely on the credentials and the vetting that, let's say, an education pedigree, career pedigree brings to the table? Well, I do look at resumes because I do look for certain, like there are certain things that do trigger me, right? Like if you have 10 jobs and you change jobs every year, that's probably not someone that I'm interested in because that tells me you're not going to stick with something for a while. So I do look at resumes for that. I don't really care what school you went to, to be honest. I really look for, I like attitude and it's hard to test for attitude, but I want someone who, I like to be direct. I want someone who can be direct with me. I don't want someone who's going to say yes. I want someone who's going to debate, but be respectful when they do that. And so you can't get any of that really from a resume. I do heavily, heavily weight though, a candidate that has come in from somebody I know. So if Nora said, hey, 
Sally is amazing. You definitely should interview her for that. I'm going to weight that very high because I know Nora, respect Nora. She's Nora's amazing. Usually my assumption is that if she's amazing, she's going to look for amazing people to surround herself with. So I do weight very highly recommendations and word of mouth, which is why a lot of people will say, I think I'm not unsimilar in that fact, that word of mouth or being recommended really is what pushes you ahead is if you can be have that recommendation. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So how do you think as from a go-to-market perspective, who are your main target beachheads and adopters? What is your approach to capturing market share and continuing to generate product market fit? I mean, you did mention that you guys might still go through a few pivots, but at this juncture, what is the thinking around that? Yes. So, you know, for any business, not just for our startup, you really want first of a kinds because people like to follow the leader. So if you can get the leader to do something, typically others will follow. If not the leader, sometimes if you can get number two or number three to go, others will pay attention, especially number one, because <laughs> they'll want to know what number two is up to that will help you. So we always try to find like the best in different categories. So for us, that's like, gaming or metaverses or wallets or DeFi or some sort of application that's really important. So we do that. We do have a process for looking for some of those. But our big thing is where can we add value? Because I think especially missing in the space is utility. There's a lot of really super cool things, but you can get caught in the hype and the marketing. And then what do you do with it? We don't want to be that company. We want to be the company that has a lot of utility. And so I do say this a lot. Utility is greater than hype because I believe if we can go after things that help make what we do with digital identity the most useful, that people are going to want to use it. People will come to us and that will attract other top partners and other top folks to us. It's really the same philosophy as AWS, right? AWS built a killer cloud like it was. It was, is the best cloud product out there. And so we would almost joke that you didn't really even have to market it because the word of mouth around it, like people knew, developers in particular, knew how incredibly awesome it was. So they would, almost like I just said on the, on the resume, right? Somebody recommends and you're like, yes, same kind of thing happened with AWS. That's what I'd really love to happen here for Unstoppable. And I would say we're getting there. We actually announced that we had just, done 850 integrations. And we put that out on Twitter. And we had some amazing partners come and we were able to go to 860 partners integrated almost overnight, not quite, but almost overnight because of the word of mouth of how easy it is to integrate, but more importantly, the value that your users get from that integration. Yeah, makes sense. And so what is in your mind, again, you've contributed to building very highly successful businesses with very sound unit economics. Talk to us a little bit about the monetization path for Unstoppable. Like, what are the main avenues that you guys are pursuing to build not only tractions in terms of adoption, that seems to be the main driver at this stage, but ultimately, you know, you're looking at building a financially successful endeavor and enterprise. So how do you think about monetization? So, you know, monetization is really important. Like, if you look at product market fit, for product market fit, you have to identify a gap that people recognize and are willing to pay for. So monetization is really, really important. When we started out, our first use case was using the digital identity or the domain to reconcile for crypto, right? For that crypto wallet. And that was a wonderful product market fit that people were willing to pay for, for sure. And so now what we're doing is experimenting with as the market changes, and now we've got more Web2 companies coming in, we have a bear market, we still have that model, but what else can we add to it? So we're looking at things like subscription-based products. So we have a product, it's kind of like a vault where you can store instead of having a wallet, which is hard for Web2 people to, I mean, it was hard for me. So not just others, hard for me. We have like a vault, we call it parking, where you can actually store your digital collectible or NFT in to make it easier. And that's a subscription model. So we're playing around with that. We have a couple other things that we've launched, like a marketing package. So our marketing, I think, is killer. 
And so a lot of people want to market with us because we do such an incredible job of taking things to market. And so as you look at that, one of the things we've announced is like this community package to help companies market, which is another subscription package. So we're looking at ways that we provide value to our customer or our user that people are willing to pay for. And that's really our track and our philosophy right now. So it's essentially giving users the choice, right? Saying, well, if you want to do everything in a completely self-custodial manner and be in charge of everything, you could do it. You could store your assets on the wallet. You could be responsible for your keys. Or if you'd like us to help with that, right, we will charge you a subscription, not entirely. And I'm very familiar with the parking concept on your website. And it makes sense. So do you find that ultimately that choice is key to penetrating new user bases and new beachheads? Yeah. I mean, I think each of these, you know, like our first wallet led us to 170 wallet integration. So I think establishing the beachhead is super important as you're looking at your business strategy. Like what are the couple that you could both learn from, right? Because you are learning. This is a brand new space. This is emerging tech. How do you learn to make it easier and then expand? One of the other things I learned from Amazon, like you'll notice that Amazon never like announces day one, something's available everywhere. They'll announce day one that it's available in maybe a region or two. And what we would do is we would test it out. We would work out all the kinks, make sure customers were super happy. And then we would roll worldwide. And I think you see us do that too. Like we test some things out. We want to make sure that it really works, that people really love it, and then expand it out for the rest of the world. So what kind of resources and support do you as a growing platform, and I would argue one of the success stories in the space, that's it's really straddling not just I think that's probably in the rearview mirror, but sort of the initial sort of OG, as we refer to it in the crypto space, going into the mainstream, which is so required for the space to succeed and, and thrive. What is the framework for support and resources that you give? You've talked about partnerships. What is the value proposition for other organizations, be it developers, being other application service providers or developers to work with Unstoppable? Yeah. So one of the big value propositions we have is that using your domain, you can use that to log into an application. So instead of having to keep track of your username and password or doing it with Google where data is collected, you can use Sandy.nft to log in. Most of the Web3 applications, I think, find value in that because they have the ethos of Web3. We want the user to decide when and what data to share. So that's been a big value proposition. I think we're over 600 different applications that you can log in with your sandy.nft. I think that's one of the big value props. Um, the other big value prop is that it's really around branding view. Like you can showcase better your reputation, your personal reputation as a user. So we have companies like MetaRides, which is a startup as well, which has a car NFT that you can race around a track here in about two weeks. The value proposition for them was the value of our profile and the ability to market and to support communities and sub-communities and to better engage them. So I think that's kind of a, a second use case. And then a third is because we started our base product was resolution of crypto wallets. That's why we have 170 of those. They see the value of using Sandy.nft versus that long set of numbers and letters that you can use and leverage as well. So that to me is another big benefit. Most companies will have like a hero product where they started from whatever got them where they are today. And that hero product will always remain a hero in some regards. And that's what we have there with that crypto resolution. Uh, just so that you know, it's quite interesting. We do 30 million resolutions a week. Think about that. 30 million resolutions a week means that somebody used Sandy.nft to resolve to their wallet or vice versa, their wallet to resolve to Sandy.nft. I think that's pretty impressive for a startup. It is hugely impressive. And I love that there is a use case that is not speculative, that is really a candidate for 
mainstream adoption, right? And the use cases are many. I think you guys are really just at the beginning of this amazing story. When you think back to us talking about the TAM and the addressable market, ultimately, it is significant and substantial, right? And so also, if you think about from a customer acquisition standpoint, right, if you look at lifetime value to CAC ratio, and as a business metric, you guys stand in a situation where as you build the customer base and start attaching those recurring revenue streams to it, your customer acquisition cost actually is very low, right? So that makes it incredibly compelling. So I think of it really from, again, the initial unit economics, as well as what the penetration and the breadth of the network give you as a platform to create incremental revenue streams. And that's, from again, from a SaaS perspective, it's very compelling. What do you think are the most important innovations required in the industry on a going forward basis? Like as a closing statement, and I know there's so much we could talk about, but I'd love to wrap the conversation with your take on what do you think is important for folks out there to be working towards in the industry, in the space? And what do you think are the things that need to change in order for this to happen? Well, I love quotes. You don't know that about me, but it's one of my favorite things. I'm inspired by quotes and I collect them and I have them, I have them stickied all over the place. <laughs> Got lots of great stories about my quotes. But one of my favorite is that people overestimate the power of a technology in the short term. So think about it. People are like, oh, NFTs, I got to make a million bucks in like two hours or Web3 rocks for one month. They overestimate the impact of it in the short term. And I think that's why we see so much hype and so much just marketing about things, claiming things that aren't true because people overestimate it in the short term, but people underestimate it in the long term. And I really think that those people who can deep dive on these technologies, for me, the future is about AI, blockchain, Web3 with these digital identities, and even the metaverse. I think those are the future, but I don't think they're going to be instantaneous. I don't think like tomorrow we're going to wake up and everybody's using blockchain or everybody's using AI. I just don't think it's going to happen that way. And so I love the fact that you've got your listeners on that are those people who look at this from a long-term perspective, because I think if you look over time at any new technology, those who've stuck with it, not overestimating the short-term, try to get that short-term gain and then move on. To me, those aren't the winners. The winners are those who view it for the long-term and see the potential and then use it for their customer's value. Yeah, that, what a great way to close on this. I think it's been very, very insightful to hear your story. Very inspiring. Also, the way you talk about how to build organizations, how you talk about the future of adoption in the space. I'd like to close on the fact that in a domain that you understand really well, which is cloud, if you remember a decade or a little over a decade ago, people were very, very excited about the cloud. It's all they could talk about. And today, everyone uses the cloud, yet no one talks about it, right? And so I've always thought that the time when blockchain and digital assets will be embedded in our day-to-day -day lives, no one will be talking about it as this aha moment, right? Everyone wants to see this, what's happening in AI right now, yet another derivation of AI where people look for these overnight successes. That's not how technology becomes embedded in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Yeah, it's so interesting. I'll just say one more thing, which I thought was funny. I was just looking yesterday and it was an old like LinkedIn where people were listing Lotus one, two, three, and I know Microsoft Word, and you would never have that today on your LinkedIn profile, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. And so I agree with you. I, that just reminded me of what you're saying, because today people are putting AI all over their LinkedIn profile. And I think in about a year, probably people won't put, I know ChatGPT, people would be like, duh, of course you do, right? Most likely they will have been replaced. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Sandy, it's been a pleasure chatting today. Like I said, at the end of those conversations, I always wish they would last longer, but it's been really insightful and I've enjoyed this. So I look forward to staying in touch. Good luck on the mission and making Unstoppable the greatest company you could make it. And yeah, really looking forward to seeing you guys succeed and crush it out there. 
Thank you. And thank you for being such a great interviewer, moderator. You made it very comfortable, ask great questions. I hope your listeners realize how great you are because it does make a huge difference. So thank you and let's go. Let's change the world. Awesome. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.